This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Your peas are popping. I think it's time to do it. I think it's time for morning <laughs> right. weeds. Let's do it. Hello, uh, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. It's it so is, nice to not be able to see you all. It's great. It's great to be <laughs> here behind the walls and, and microphones. Yeah. Um, I don't think cameras are really our thing. In a relaxed sort of format. Today is the morning after Donald Trump's, for some reason you don't call it a State of the Union in the first year. I was year. wondering if you, if you why that is. If anyone's going to know, it's Matt. Make something up. I, yeah. Make, make something up. Make us it's, fake news So by tradition, you don't give a State of the Union on your first year because you haven't been president. Mm-hmm. So you can't update people on the State of the Union. Um, some president a few presidents ago said he like wanted to do a speech in that same time of year and said it was going to be his budget message. So then subsequent presidents have also enjoyed the opportunity to do the speech. But it turns out it's really fucking hard to actually get your budget together by late February. As Wait, who Don- did the first one? I do not remember, oh. which would be a good weedsy fact. Okay. Uh, so at Donald Trump's time, we seem to be uh, dropping the pretense. Um, he has not gotten this budget thing together, which is honestly fine. Um, it's hard. It would be better to do it well. This was like the, the instead of the, the budget speech, like the speech speech. He yes. was showing that he got a speech together. He gave a speech. Um, so <laughs> we like put it on a teleprompter so and just read that. So we are going to talk later about the like speech response uh, in, in the media because um, it's interesting and I think a little bit curious. Uh, but first, I think we're going to just play it straight and like talk about what Donald Trump said in the speech, and the part- policies yes. of the Donald Trump administration as explained by Donald Trump. Healthcare seemed like it had, it seemed to me more substantive than the other sections of the speech. Yeah, it. Um, I think I was a bit of an outlier here, but I actually would consider this like the most substantive healthcare plan that has been put forward by the Trump administration to date. Like, and that does not say much. Like, it, there was no plan before this, but it's like, it's a lot more substantive than anything we saw from his campaign. Like, and it really just lays out some core principles of where the administration is that that hadn't been done before um, before the speech. That being said, I don't think it gives like a ton more guidance what the executive wants. It, it doesn't say like, OK, Paul Ryan, like here's how to move forward. But it basically says like Trump is on board with um, with where congressional leaders are, that that he's like in the same kind of ballpark. So he basically did this as a five point plan. And I think the three po- the three first ones were, were the most important ones. So his first priority, he said, protecting people with pre-existing conditions, making sure they have access to health insurance. Um, what this sounds a lot like is um, something we've seen from congressional Republicans, the idea that everyone should be able to buy insurance regardless if you have a pre-existing condition, but you might let some people be charged more um, if they don't maintain continuous coverage. I think it was really notable, his word choice. He didn't say Insurers can't discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. He said people with pre-existing conditions should have access to health insurance. I think that was a significant word choice and wording that would have been different. And do you want to just spend a moment on how that's working in the bills? And and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of pre-Obamacare status quo, an insurer could say no. But in something like the price bill, what an insurer can do is charge you 150% of the normal premium. Uh, Yeah. So basically the idea is that um, 
Republicans need some way to encourage sick people or to encourage healthy people to buy health insurance. Um, Obamacare has the individual mandate. Everyone hates the individual mandate. So Republicans come up with this idea called continuous coverage, where as long as you maintain continuous coverage, you move from job to individual market to Medicaid, whatever, as long as you are always covered, insurers cannot charge you more because you have a pre-existing condition. However, if you have a break in coverage, um, weirdly, the leaked draft says if you have more than a 63-day break in coverage, um, which must be something about getting past two months. I don't really understand it. But if you have a 63-day break in coverage, insurance companies can charge you 130 percent of the standard premium if they'd like to. And they could do that for an entire year before you can get back to the normal rate. Um, You were right, Ezra. The price plan was 150. They've gone down a little bit, which I think is interesting. But basically, that's the idea there. You're kind of combining the pre-existing protections with the individual mandate into this continuous coverage provision. And just so I understand it, the standard rate is a sta- is the listed price for any insurance yes. plan. Yes. Okay. Um, no underwriting, no ask right. questions about how healthy you are. Um, so that's, that, that was kind of part one. Part two was interesting and arguably the most controversial part of the health care plan is where he endorsed the idea of a tax credit. He said that people should get a tax credit to help purchase insurance. And this is something that's actually dividing Republicans right now, where you see like a pretty sharp line being drawn between someone like Paul Ryan, who's kind of more um, moderate, at least on this issue, and the Freedom Caucus, someone like Mark Meadows, um, who does not want any sort of tax credit. So I think Republicans generally agree the tax credit should not be as generous as the Affordable Care Act. Um, They disagree on whether there should be any tax credit at all. So it was notable to me that Trump said like, yes, to tax credits. It seems like he's kind of choosing a side on that debate. And the only thing he really did there that I thought, um, well, I guess Medicaid a little bit. Anyways, I thought it was notable that he kind of came down on the side of tax credits. Um, And the third part of the five-point plan I thought was notable was um, a little plank on Medicaid where he said, um, you know, governors have flexibility, which felt like a nod to block grants. And that um, I believe, I don't know the exact phrasing, but it was something like no one should be left behind, which seemed sort of like a nod to keeping Medicaid expansion. But it felt a little bit in tension with like the nod to block grants a bit earlier. But it definitely was a mention of like we are cognizant of this very large Medicaid population. We are cognizant of the meeting we had with John Kasich um, Mm -hmm. on Saturday. Like, we understand this population matters. And I think, you know, you add this all together, and I'll turn it over to you, Ezra, because you wrote about this yesterday. And it really shows, like, the baseline of American health policy shifting. Um, I I liked what you wrote, Ezra. It would really, without the ACA, it'd be really unbelievable to have a Republican president come into office and his first major speech, the thing he suggests is a health care plan with tax credits, protections for pre-existing conditions, and no one being left behind on Medicaid. Like, that is much more liberal than where Republicans would have been before the health care law passed. Yeah, this this speech showed it's an Obamacare world now and Republicans just live in it. And the, the There are a couple of things I think are worth saying here. So there have been two reactions to it. I think it's interesting because I think both you and I have come down on the side of what he said on healthcare is pretty consequential. There's also been a reaction, which I I don't think is wrong, that what he said on healthcare was vague. And both of these things are are simultaneously true. So what I think is really important about what he did on healthcare is that if you rewind the clock just really a month, a month and a half back, there was – Almost no – there was no agreement and no clear signal from the White House on even what the path would be forward. So would they do repeal and delay? 
Uh, there had been conflicting statements out of the White House, conflicting statements out of Congress. Would they have a, a health care plan that had that totally wiped out Medicaid? Remember the House Freedom Caucus, they say that if you do not completely reverse the Medicaid expansion, they will oppose the bill. That is also currently their position. So now um, Trump is on to the left of the House Freedom Caucus significantly. Tax credits, as you know, are, are, are a big open question here. I will note something that I uh, did not catch on the first runaround, but but it is worth noting. A secondary fight on tax credits are whether they are refundable or not. Right now in the leaked GOP draft, they're refundable. Um, I think if you listen to the rhetoric of Trump, they would not be able to survive what he has said and make these credits non-refundable given the the coverage disaster. Yeah, I think a good advisor from Rand Paul was tweeting about how – well, he didn't say refundable. I have the same – Yeah, I, do, I think these you. are refundable. I, I I think that – I think what Trump is basically saying is that he is more or less on board for what the, the House GOP is looking at um, and, and where it's going to go from here, which I think is, in order to get through the Senate would have to be a lot more liberal as you actually got these leaked documents – that um, the the plan is currently structured would probably create a thirty to fifty percent individual market coverage drop, which they're not going to be able to do, not not given what they said. Um, but but the other thing, I, I'll open this for a disagreement <laughs> in one sec. The other thing though that I, I do think is fascinating is this really to me showed just how much Obamacare is setting the terms of the date and has really changed them forever. So you now have a, a debate on health care, which a couple of years ago, there have always been Republican health care ideas floating around. And in fact, Obamacare is based on a lot of them, like Mitt Romney's ideas in Massachusetts. But the Republican Party has never in any serious way prioritized a coverage expansion or any kind of significant expansion of, of, of health care coverage outside of maybe the Medicare Part D expansion under George W. Bush. And what you're seeing now is a sort of new reality for Republicans in which the argument is not over whether it should be the government's job to be funding health insurance for able-bodied, healthy uh, and young people, but how it should be doing that. And Republicans are arguing that that should be done through age-based credits that are more universal than what Obamacare has, but also a lot less generous, and that the health care that those buy should be also a lot less comprehensive, should cover fewer things, should be more catastrophic. But there's, but that is a different vision of coverage. It is not a vision that is uh, that does not have coverage included in it. And similarly, I am very struck. And it's uh, Matt, you had nice language last night that the Medicaid expansion has put down deeper roots in in Republican states than certainly I had expected. But the degree to which now it is agreed upon that even if they're going to try some stuff to do long-term cuts with Medicaid and per capita block granting, and I think a lot might be coming there and a lot that I will not like, the degree to which the Medicaid expansion is now taken as something that more or less has to be protected, those people have to be protected, is is striking. So yeah, we the, the legacy of Obamacare at this point, in addition to it being status quo and existing law, is that... The Republican Party elected new president. The first thing that president feels like he has to do is wade into this health care debate and move the Republican Party along with Paul Ryan to a place where they are converging in a way they haven't before on a vision of how to do an expanded coverage system. Um, whereas before what they were perfectly happy to do was have some plans that floated around but really not do anything and to prioritize things like tax cuts and tax reform over giving people who can't afford health insurance health insurance. To offer a, a little bit of skepticism <laughs> here, I, one of the main things of president – you know, presidential speeches can only do so much. 
But one of the things they can do is try to align your own partisans behind the president's way of thinking, right? It's a president's chance to explain to his own fans how he is thinking about things and how he wants you to think about things. So when Barack Obama did his healthcare speech, I think it was September 2009, he didn't he didn't like magically conjure up mass popular support for his idea, but he said, "Okay, the problem is that we have too many Americans who are uninsured." Another problem is that we need to shore up and protect the insurance plan that the insured majority has. Um, a third problem is that we need to bend the healthcare cost curve. And then he started talking about some of his ideas about how to do those different things. And whether you liked all of his ideas or not, the ideas were all ideas that supported the vision that he had laid out. And so it all communicated to Democratic partisans at home, here's what is going on here. It communicated to Obama's allies or maybe wavering allies in Congress. This charismatic young man who just won the White House feels this is a defensible political agenda. I may want to get behind him. And it left, you know, your your Mary Landrews and your Blanche Lincolns and your Ben Nelsons who were like outside the Obama penumbra still feeling like kind of nervous about it. Uh, what Trump did in this speech to me, I think far and away the most important thing he did on health care, was he maintained the false pretense that the Republican Party's diagnosis of the Affordable Care Act is that it has fallen short in providing Americans with generous health insurance coverage. They have said that that is their complaint with it, but they are lying. Lying is great in politics sometimes. <laughs> Donald Trump has gotten really, really far by lying. But if you are Bill Cassidy or Susan Collins or Dean Heller or any of the other Republicans who is worrying Shelley Moore Caputo, what you are, have been worrying about since Election Day is what is going to happen to me when it is exposed that we are lying. To get those people on board, you need to give them some kind of reassurance that you can get away with this sleight of hand. Standing up in front of an audience and continuing to lie doesn't do that, right? Like the reason repeal and delay already fell apart is that a critical mass of senators has realized that Paul Ryan's pitch on health care is a lie and they are nervous about going to war on the basis of that lie. Trump is just doubling down on it. Right. He's saying we're going to give everyone better coverage. It's going to be cheaper coverage. And he is not going to do that. The ideas he endorsed will not accomplish those goals. It's not that like I don't think they will accomplish those goals or center on budget and policy priorities and think they'll accomplish those goals. Paul Ryan doesn't think they will accomplish those goals. And if you, you know, just interviewed him five years ago, like he would say it, right? He would say that America has become a cushy hammock in which poor people are taken care of too much. And what we need to do is put all of our energy behind reducing poor people's standard of living. Like that is the driving force of his philosophy. The whole legislative framework supports that. This slightly less extreme version of it is still aimed at making sure that if you have a low income in the United States of America, you receive worse rather than better health insurance, which is fine. That is a fine idea. This like Randian vision where, you know, school lunch may give people food, but it doesn't nourish their soul is I believe a Paul Ryan idea. 
Like, that's great, but it gives people food. Uh, the Affordable Care Act gives people health insurance. What Paul Ryan wants to do is for people to have less health insurance. What Donald Trump went up there is he said he wants people to have more health insurance. So they can keep spinning their wheels on this, but like, either they get 51 votes for the proposition that we will tell people your insurance is going to get better, but then we make it worse, or else they can't. And they're just like in this holding pattern, it seems to me. And the speech did not move at all on that. It was like a mild slapdown of these like Looney Tune Freedom Caucus people. But that's not like at all the problem. It would be as if Obama gave a speech where the entire audience of the speech was Dennis Kucinich. <laughs> and I, I don't think that makes any sense, you know? So I, I slightly disagree with this read of, of this speech. I, I think you're seeing movement in the Republican Party and that I, I I don't know if it's driven by philosophy or if it's driven by politics. It seems like a lot of it is political. But, um, you know, I've been following these Republican plans basically since the election. And one of the things that really struck me in this leaked draft that came out on Friday is these plans are getting less punitive to poor people. Um, like, make no mistake, they're definitely worse if you are poor um, than the Affordable Care Act is but then for the you. status quo. The, yes. The, propose, the proposition of the most generous of these plans, of mm -hmm. Cassidy Collins, right, is that more people will get worse insurance. Well, it that. depends on your definition of worse insurance. So, like, and I am actually, like, like more— in, term, in terms of the Paul Ryan, Donald Trump, nouveau bullshit view in which the problem with the Affordable Care Act is that the deductibles are too high and you don't have enough choice of doctors, nobody is putting on the table a proposal that will make deductibles lower and will give people more choice of doctors. They're doing the opposite. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. One of the things I talked to a lot of people on Obamacare, I've been running these focus groups with a research firm the past few days, and I have become like more sympathetic to a lot of people. We did one with people who are uninsured right now, people who um, are just not able to afford the premiums. I think they're mostly Clinton voters. And one of the things, there are actual affordability issues with the Affordable Care Act. There are a significant number of people who can't afford health insurance. And, you know, we've talked to them about, I think their number one choice would just be more subsidies to get a generous plan, but their number two choice would be at least some kind of coverage they could afford. Um I think I've become talking to Obamacare enrollees more 
sympathetic than I was earlier to allowing skimpier plans on the health insurance market because you do have some people who are just locked out right now by the benefit package. And I know this is like But did Donald Trump say that his plan So I think I think this is packages? I think this is actually a place where Donald Trump is in the past used a lot of language that went in exactly the direction you're talking about and last night did not. Mm-hmm. Last night he used the very sort of weaselly but very specific we're going to make sure everybody has access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. We're going to make everybody have healthcare by making healthcare cheaper. Like if you read that in sort of like which you usually can't do with Trump because mm-hmm. he usually doesn't know how to do this, but here somebody was like Tom Price clearly <laughs> had a hand in this speech. He said and and was pretty clear that we are going to take down insurance regulation mm-hmm. so that you are going to be able to get um cheaper plans. And finally, the time has come to give Americans the freedom to purchase health insurance across state lines, which will create a truly competitive national marketplace that will bring costs way down and provide far better care. So important. It is true that with my wonk glasses on, I understand that what he means by that is we are deregulating the insurance industry so people can get worse so plans. So I, I think but there what are... he says is that they will provide not just slightly better care, not equivalent care, far better care. If you and are his plan it, it, does not so, do that. So if you are somebody, so I actually do not very much want to be in the position of defending the speech, but I also I also think that you are you're not giving credence to what are actually some of the legitimate reasons this stuff is powerful. The Affordable Care is often not great for you if you are 33 and you make $47,000 a year and they are coming up with an idea that will give you a larger subsidy because it's age-rated, it's age-based. You will get um, potentially a cheaper plan because the age rating will fall. And so for some people, there are going to be winners and there are also going to be losers. And also, I don't think this will pass, which is where I'd like to take it next. But I actually agree with you in the broad case. They are not resolving the underlying contradictions that they cannot um, – get where they're going. But they are also coming up with a vision of healthcare. And Sarah's written about this a lot and she's written about it, I think, correctly, that what they are saying is that they would like to more advantage younger, healthier folks who want more catastrophic care, who want um, cheaper plans, who want to be able to buy a plan that California wouldn't allow, but South Dakota would. But and where maybe is the that hint works. in the speech? The way to make health insurance available to everyone is to lower the cost of health insurance. And that is what we are going to do. I'm not sure that we are really disagreeing sharply on this. I don't think anybody argues he made a stirring case for an alternative vision of health care. But what he laid out was a different vision of health care. What he did to signal, I mean, right now, he's saying to House Republicans, I'm going to back what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like that was a signal that had not existed before. So to say like there is no movement, I don't think is, is is reasonable. Now, this doesn't just need 51 votes. It needs 60. I don't see where this goes from here. I'd be curious no. if you do. No. I don't see what can pass the House that is not too conservative, that it could even get 51 in the Senate, much less get the 60 needs, because this is a vision of healthcare based on differently regulating the insurance market. And you can't do that in reconciliation. Yeah, I, I don't know where this goes. And it's a weird thing to, like, hold both ideas in my head that, like, I'm really convinced they're going to do this and I see no possible path towards doing this. But that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, you know, the plan, is, like, as you were writing last night, Ezra, this plan is is getting more and more liberal as they have these town halls, as they hear from people who um, who talk about losing their health insurance, as they hear from, like, their old fart constituents who, like, really like their generous 
subsidies, you've seen the new drafts of the plan kind of reacting to that. And then you've seen the backlash on the conservative side saying, this isn't what we want. Like, we want to, like, go back to, like, original Paul Ryan, like, to go back to, like, less subsidies or no subsidies. And I I certainly don't see any Democrats getting on board. Like, there's no discussion of getting some centrist Democrats on board, because why would they possibly— I cannot see—maybe you guys can't, but I cannot see, like, a political— rationale if you're like, you know, like a moderate Democrat to really get on board with this? Like, why why do this? Um, I will say the one moment I think things could actually change in the nearest future um, is that insurance plans are going to have to, in spring, I think it's April or May, are going to have to like say, yes, I want to sell Obamacare. Or no, I don't. And one of the things that would not shock me if it happened is if we just saw like a mass mm-hmm. exodus from the marketplaces and then that like basically forces the Democrats' plan. Um, And it'll be spun different ways by both parties. The Democrats will say, like, look, you collapse the markets. Republicans will say Obamacare is collapsing. In any case, we'll have a collapsing health insurance market. And that will be the the mechanism that forces change because you can blame whoever you want. But at that point, Obamacare has become unsustainable. Rates are skyrocketing. Some people can't get um, insurance through the marketplace. That seems like, to me the most um, plausible catalyst for for moving this forward. But that sounds to me like it's going to actually harden Democrats' mm-hmm. hearts, right? That like Trump, you know, not having been president for a month, having already received his rave reviews, oh, he's presidential now. When insurance marketplaces start collapsing, Democrats are going to say, Donald Trump, you got a big problem with your collapsing insurance marketplaces. Here's our bill for a public option. Here's our bill to increase subsidies. Here's this. Here's that. Here's the other thing. And then you're still going to have Freedom Caucus people who are like, no, we're not going to do – you know, you're just like you're dead but in the like, water. But- it's, it's Trump is not – taking this seriously. But what if you have like millions of people in a situation where they just can't get the tax credits? Like there's no health insurance sitting right. selling in their area. That's terrible. I feel like Democrats, like our Democrats are going to say like, well, you're a problem. No, Democrats like, are going to put it- forward in good faith what they believe would make health insurance in America better. Like the ideas drawn from Hillary Clinton's campaign, ideas that were left on, on the drawing room table. I mean, and maybe, you know, there's what? There's 48 Democrats in the Senate. So you might find four or five or six who think that the best solution is to move health care policy to the right. But most of them think you should move policy to the left. I think that's one what question, I, I agree that this is going to be the big question. And I think the, the issue is like, is there a stabilization plan? Because if you go back to Barack Obama's version of this address almost about eight years ago now, he comes out and the first thing he says is I am not the first president to do this, but I want to be the last. Obviously, he was not the last. But the thing that usually happens when presidents try to reform the healthcare system is they just fail. Uh, and I think Obama has sort of put in our heads that like, well, they get it done somehow, right? Like they grind it out and you finally pass it and it happens on Christmas Day. And I think there's just a really significant chance that it's incredibly difficult. They get something out of the House and they just can't move it forward in the Senate. Also, And then there's this collapsing market problem and they have to come up with some kind of patch. But I don't know that – I think Democrats would work with them on a patch. I don't think they would work with them. They would have to just come up with something that is so different from the Ryan plan that I just don't see how you get support among – House Republicans for it. I don't know. I mean, like, I have trouble gaming out the politics of this. Like, if you're a Democrat from a state, like, like, let's say, um, a rural state that that 
doesn't have a carrier anymore in the marketplace. And like your choices are between like supporting some Ryan stabilization mechanisms or saying like, no, I want my bill and like I'm going to stick to that. I don't know which one you pick, which one. I feel like Democrats do have like a desire to make the ACA work. Mm -hmm. And like if they felt like it was actually stabilizing, they would get behind something. And you have seen the Obama administration has to do has had to do this in like very small levels. There's been two years where they've had one county. Um, one year was in Mississippi. Last year was in Arizona where no insurance company wanted to sell. And they basically like had to have these negotiations with insurers and like kind of beg them to get in the market. And they did give them a nice proposition of like, um, you know, monopoly in a particular market. But doing that on a massive scale and mm-hmm. doing that when you hate the Affordable Care Act, that I don't know that there is like the infrastructure or stabilization mechanisms or like desires to do that on a massive scale. But that's why I don't think Democrats will patch it. Like so far, every time something goes wrong, you know, in a marketplace, something there, right? The Trump administration does not take responsibility and say we are doing X, Y, or Z to make it better. Instead, they and Paul Ryan both put out press releases. They put out Facebook memes. They put out Twitter videos bragging about how this shows that they are correct, right? That like this Affordable Care Act, it's not working out, so we need to take everyone's health insurance away. And it is driving me furious. And I think that I am not the only one. And after months of this, if they keep deliberately trying to make it worse in order to advance their larger goal of making things even worse, the idea that they are going to get some kind of bailout from Democrats, like it strikes me as But so what do you think will happen on the other end of that? I mean, so you've said, right, like I understand that Democrats will put forward a bill that also won't pass. But then you have this issue of Arizona has no carriers. Right. So – well, either the Trump administration will change course and start trying to do a good job of running the United States of America, uh, in which case I think they absolutely have the ability to, like, make the phone calls and get people back in. Um, or else, like, uh, people will lose their health insurance and ACA will come down to new regulations on the employer-sponsored market and a large Medicaid expansion and will, you know, fight things out in subsequent elections. But, like... I don't think I think that's a less stable equilibrium than you do. But but rather than can do litigate this, I'd like to talk about immigration too. Oh yeah, because yeah. before the speech began, a bunch of I think it was television reporters. But I Trump, I, Trump had lunch with a bunch of TV a senior administration following yeah, oh, right. this, that, that was amazing. With, with, um, can we take bankers. a moment on no, that? No 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 no. Yes yes. So. So Trump has this lunch with TV anchors. <laughs> and we and knew that Trump was having the lunch because yes. it was on the it presidential script. Yeah. <laughs> so every day, like the White House press list sends out like guidance for Trump's day. And at like 1230 or whatever time, it's at like lunch with television anchors uh, or anchors for Trump seems to historically like to be quoted as not himself. There was that weird example yeah, John Miller. Yeah, <laughs> of like him making phone calls under a pseudonym. And this was. Specifically after Trump had like given on this whole thing about how you know journalists shouldn't rely on anonymous sources and that they yes. really need to name their sources, he then has this lunch where he um, – the Goes ground the rules record. of it are that he has to be referred to as a senior administration official, which while technically true is just like mind-blowing, especially in the context of him talking about what a problem – this has been people relying on these yes. anonymous sources, not. And then it looks like at 6 p.m. the embargo lifted, and then anchors were able to actually quote Trump. It was just like such odd ground rules around this. But it was like just he said, just given that a couple days ago he had gotten up and said, like I think it was at a rally, wasn't it? 
he gave some it major. Was at CPAC. It was at CPAC, and he said that <laughs> reporters should not be allowed to use anonymous sources because they're just making them up. Earlier that day, people pointed out there had been an anonymous source briefing from the Trump administration, and then Trump a few days later, like the level of does not care, like level of just like does not care about the things he has said and just is not playing it straight. Sometimes, sometimes it bowls even me over. Anyway, all these folks came out of the lunch and they came out saying that Trump was really softening on immigration, that he might be open to some kind of path. They seem to be saying that he might be open to some kind of movement on immigration where if he was getting his enforcement measures in and building his wall, he would, as the, the, the term of art is pivot. And move towards. I don't know if it was. I don't. I don't want to go too far and say path to. to they said a, a legal status, but a legal status situation. Um, and so there was like a lot of hubbub, and then we had the speech, and the speech was interesting in that I don't. You could see a little bit like what things Trump had said that might have brought them there, but I think if you read the speech in context, if you looked at. Trump is starting a new crime unit. That do you remember the name of it? Either of you? Yes, it's called Voice. It's um. I, I think. The point is to publicize crimes committed by unauthorized immigrants. Like it's it's another one of these sort of. I believe all immigrants. Oh, all immigrants. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, it's called the Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement Team. So, um, and so it is going to. We are providing a voice to those who have been ignored by our media and silenced by special interests. Right. So the theory here is that there is a conspiracy between special interests and the media <laughs> to cover up the extent to which immigrants are committing crimes in the United States. Um, now, of course, there are uh, tens of millions of immigrants in the United States. Some of them do commit crimes. Uh, we have fairly good research that their uh, offending rate is lower than that of, of native-born citizens. Um, that's not a conspiracy. Uh, but yeah, we're going to have a federal task force designed to mislead people about the extent of immigration and crime. And then Trump also said that, you know, he would like to see immigration action that, you know, made America's economy stronger and focused on merit. And he had a couple other lines in there. I don't think we saw a real change on immigration last night. I, I don't think that was there. And I think that if you think about who is in the Trump administration, including Trump himself, but also Steve Bannon and, and Miller, who have talked about legal immigration being the beating heart of America's immigration problem, I don't think that is really on offer. But I, I think it is worth discussing for a minute because that was the other place where there were some real – there was at least a belief that maybe Trump was saying something different. And, and I, I can kind of squint and see it. But I would need a lot more evidence to buy it. I think it's also worth talking about this this merit-based immigration part because that's an area where there's a lot of um, potential ambiguity, right? And so what Trump was saying there on the, on the text level is that if the United States shifted from its current – uh, visa system, which is heavily based on bringing relatives of U.S. citizens over to uh, a merit-based system more like they have allegedly in Canada and Australia, uh, where it's based more on, on the job skills that you have, that this would improve the federal budget, um, ver various other kinds of things like that. Um, so this is more or less true, and it's a thing that people say, uh, but there's a lot of ambiguity in what 
like, do you mean by it? And so Daryl Issa is a, a House Republican from Orange County um, who is often threading difficult needles because his base in his district is super duper duper right wing, but it's also a heavily Asian and Latino district. Uh, so he has a bill that he likes to bring up whenever comprehensive immigration reform looks like it's happening called the Skills Act. Um, and so his bill would cancel what's called diversity visa lottery, which just sort of like hands out visas more or less at random to countries that don't send a lot of people to the U.S. and replace it with a big expansion in uh, – visas for people with technical degrees. So the Skills Act would increase the net number of immigrants and has a lot of good budgetary effects. If you look at the CBO score on it, um, it never really has like gone anywhere, but House Republicans like to co-sponsor it. Jeff Sessions also likes to talk about merit-based immigration systems as a good idea, but he doesn't have like a Senate version of the Skills Act. He has never actually done anything to try to increase the flow of highly skilled immigrants to the United States of America. He just says it is bad that many unskilled people come in through the current system. And there is, in my mind, like a real difference between those two things, right? Between like talking about skills as a reason to cut back on immigration and talking about skills as like you are actually trying to do work to find ways to create legal pathways for people to come through. Um, I am sure that Donald Trump has not sat down and like read extensive research on how the Canadian system works, how it's different from the Australian system, how we might move, blah, blah, blah. Prob well, that would be a good weed sometime. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like those are actually interesting yeah. systems. We right, exactly. Back yeah, we should have Dara and we should do that. This is – Almost certainly the kind of situation where if you abstract away from all of the details, like Gary Cohn and Jeff Sessions have a broadly similar slogan. So you like stick that in the speech and then you walk away and forget about it. It would be interesting if the Trump administration like rolled out some kind of real effort to do this. And I saw some people like very excitedly like writing this up. Uh, but Trump is – mentioned the idea of a merit-based immigration system uh, for months and months and months. And he's just never, like, done anything to indicate he's, he's going to make it happen. So to me, that's, like, what that was. Yeah. The space between, like, the anchor's launch and the speech, it almost, like, reminds me of something I feel like I've seen a number of times with Trump and policy, where a lot of times it seems like he's, like, gotten the talking points on Republican issues, but hasn't, like, fully, like, digested them. Like, the most clear example I remember of this is, like, this whole insurance across state lines when, like, there was this kind of rambling, I think it was in one of the debates where he just, like, kept talking about the lines and someone had, like, clearly at some point been like, these are state lines and, like, this is, like, the, the plan we want and, like, he kind of got, like, halfway there on it and it, like, feels like talking points telephone where, where you kind of, like, <laughs> hear the ideas and, like, I feel like it might be a little bit indicative of a lot of what to expect from Trump on policy when I zoom out of it, that a lot of the times it gets confused because he's not someone who comes from a policy background. Um, he's not surrounded by a lot of policy people. Um, Neil Irwin actually had like a great piece uh, in the upshot today talking about kind of the wonk gap that's happening right now. And one of the reasons policy seems to be moving a bit slower now than it did under Obama is, is you just have a lot fewer people thinking about like serious proposals on the issues that they are trying to move on. So kind of like when I look at the space between the two things we heard about on immigration, it 
reminds me of this like larger kind of policy gap that that seems to still exist and kind of speaks to why you see different viewpoints within a few hours and why, you know, you see slow movement on on basically everything. But but I think think that. Oh, sorry. Trump has to some extent inverted the relationship between speech making and policy development that I don't want to. Oh, that's interesting. More of an old fart than I am. But both the Obama administration and the Bush administration would workshop within the presidential branch of government and out in the agencies, what it is they wanted to do. And there was like a huge iceberg of like white paper and stuff like that that would be digested by the speechwriting team and boiled down into like a sentence or a paragraph or two paragraphs. And then through background briefing calls with journalists, we would redecipher for the public like – what was below the waterline of this whole speech. You can't prove the negative, but they are not doing the kind of background briefings that would suggest there is any ice under the waterline. Or releasing the papers or or anything. Releasing documents. There's no no work In the Obama, I'm not trying to, in the Obama era before a speech would happen, there would be like a blast reporters and you get like all these like Mm -hmm. 12 page fact sheets on everything, which just I think goes to your point. Right, exactly. This seems... Like they are taking the speech writing task much more literally than that. And they are having some kinds of meetings about what the speech will say. And because there are other shards of ice out in the sea, journalists can like begin to describe to you what the iceberg might look like. But they're not actually doing the policy development. So, so I mean, a clear, clear example of this was that we had this uh, good reporting in Bloomberg yesterday morning, I think, and it said that the White House wasn't sure whether they should uh, endorse Paul Ryan's uh, destination-based cash flow tax, uh, but that Rents Priebus wanted to do it because he's buddies with Paul Ryan and Steve Bannon wanted to do it because he likes that it sounds protectionist, uh, but that the Treasury Secretary thinks it's a bad idea and the National Economic Council chief thinks it's a bad idea. So then in the speech, there's a line about how foreign countries tax our exports, but then their goods flow into our country tax-free that I think most likely is intended as an endorsement of of the border tax. But there was no – as you say, there was no fact sheet. There was no briefing call. There was no explanation. And so I am not confident that Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin were like – persuaded to endorse this or that anything has actually happened in the policymaking process. It seems like oftentimes the tension in a Trump speech is between a Priebus-like desire to seem normal and a Bannon-like desire to seem crazy. And there happened to be a Bannon-Priebus coalescence around this line. And the fact that their economic policy team doesn't agree with it, just kind of like wound up not factoring But doesn't mean – but one thing that could mean is that the economic policy team got rolled. The, and I think we right. don't think that happened either. We're not sure what happens when Gary Cohen sits down with Donald Trump and says, this bill Paul Ryan is sending you, the reason Walmart hates it and will – you know, blah, 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 blah. I don't think we know what will happen Right. I don't there. think we talked it through and I also don't think they like brought in the lobbyists yep. to like hear just, their argument. It's not yeah. done. Right. They like, just, they the just wrote the speech. And so it's – challenging as a journalist. Our role is often to explain what these things really mean, but I don't want to like over explain it because like oftentimes if something sounds like you don't know exactly what he's talking about, like 
probably they're not sure. Can I make one weedsy point on the immigration stuff, which is not about what Trump is saying, but I think it, it speaks to how confused this discussion has become. So if you go into the the economic literature on immigration, there's a series of really interesting papers from Giovanni Perry out at uh, UC Davis, I think. And he makes the point and has a lot of empirical research showing this, that there are really two kinds of labor that can come into the country or or can, frankly, be born in the country. And you can think of it as complementary and substitute labor. So when you bring in a English-speaking Indian software engineer, that Indian software engineer competes very directly with an American software engineer. They can both do the same job. They can both work at Microsoft doing systems operations. And so when you're thinking about immigrants competing with with domestic workers, that's the kind of situation you might think about. What's weird is that it's not the situation people think about. The situation people seem to think about and talk about when they discuss competition with workers is you have someone coming in from El Salvador who does not speak English and does not have much education and is willing to accept very low wages for work. And that labor, Perry argues, it should be thought of as complementary. Folks are do a lot of jobs that just would not end up being done. Not It's not the only thing that happens, right? There's some competition, but they do a lot of jobs that would not end up being done in America if not for that labor, right? You would have fewer people doing gardening work in America, just full stop, if you did not have immigration. Or we see this a lot around child care. In areas – like there's good research on this and, and, and Matt, I think you know that literature better than I do. But in cities where you have a lot of immigration, the cost of childcare is a lot lower just because there are more people doing it. Cities where you don't, um, the, the cost is higher. It's not just that it's all evened out but people are competing for a limited set of, set of positions. And I think it's an interesting thing that the Trump administration, which they are really basing their argument on immigration. So the thing that other people say is they want immigration to grow the economy and then maybe we'll redistribute the gains. And that's sort of the Marco Rubio view of immigration. And if that's your view of immigration, moving to a, a merit-based idea, moving to a more skills-based immigration policy, that might make some sense um, because those folks, they uh, can contribute a lot to the economy. They can work in higher value industries. You know, The American economy can produce more and then hopefully we're able to, to redistribute the gains so that e- the folks who lost out in that are, are well compensated. But if what you're worried about is competition for with American workers and particularly lower skill American workers or, or mid skill American workers, right, which is what you're seeing in these sort of, you know, old manufacturing towns uh, and and suburbs and exurbs that Trump won, this move to immigrants who really sharply compete um, does not actually make a ton of sense. I'm not saying it's a bad thing because I I don't necessarily think it is. I I don't think we should think about labor that way. But I think within their framework, it's very confused. And that they have gotten um, – they are – it is not going to make their folks happy to have more immigrants directly in competition for jobs versus people who are actually doing a different kind of job in America. Well, I mean that's one reason why I, I just like – I don't believe that the Bannon-Sessions restrictionist wing of the Republican Party will ever generate this like more skilled yeah. immigration uh, framework. I mean I think that they might make it easier for people from – Europe to come, or I think they maybe would have 10 years ago, but now they're concerned that Europe has full of Muslims behind enemy lines. Um, And I think that, you know, pre-Trump administration, that they have always been clear that they have a concern about the cultural diversity of, of the United States. You've seen this in the discussion of the refugee ban, that they don't want like quote unquote pockets of of Muslim residents inside the United States, and that like that's their 
issue with this and they're like grasping around to find economic studies that will support their points on this but often not interpreting them very well or or very clearly i mean on the on the combo and substitute work a, a really interesting paper came out recently by michael clemens and some other authors and it looked at in the 60s we kicked out a lot of uh, migrant guest workers from Mexico from U.S. agriculture, and they show very clearly that uh, you know wages didn't really rise in response to this. So what happened instead was that you can use agricultural land to do different things, and so certain kinds of crops they had a mechanization alternative for. So like there were tomato picking machines, but people weren't using them because they made your tomatoes kind of worse. Uh, but when labor dried up, they brought in the machines. The quality of supermarket tomatoes fell a little and, you know, life went on. Uh, other things like asparagus, they like had no good way to automate that. So we just grew less asparagus and they grew more iceberg lettuce instead. And so, you know, people ate lettuce and, and not asparagus. People often have it in their head that like a supply and demand model of the economy uh, argues that wages have to go up if labor supply dries up. But like that's not – True. There's no model of the economy that says that. There's obviously no fixed quantity of asparagus that Americans need to consume. Um, and things can change in so many, many different ways. And when you look at particularly – I think since Trump won, we've had like a loud and growing chorus of people talking about how telling people in like dying medium-sized industrial towns that they should just move to find more opportunity like isn't an adequate answer. Um, and I think that's true. And you should really think about the immigration debate in that lens, right? Like, mm -hmm. are you going to say to somebody living in a declining Midwestern manufacturing town that your solution for him is you're going to deport some Mexican farm laborers from Southern California and they can go move to, you know, El Centro and pick lettuce? Like, that's not a reasonable it's, – it's not just that that's not like a reasonable solution to agricultural policy. It's not a reasonable solution to the problems of community decline, right? If our solution involved moving people and destroying their communities, like, we could do that without deporting the immigrants. It's not, it's not doing any work, right? Um, immigrants are not flooding into collapsing towns to go start farms there. Like, that's not how immigration works. It's not how farms work. Uh, th there's nothing like that. And there's this – Complete disconnect between Trump's like problem identification and this whole immigration thing. There is a strong evidence that white working class Midwesterners have very strong anti-immigration sentiments, uh, which is an interesting fact about people. But like the two things have nothing to do with each other. I think this is a good uh, move. We, we've talked about the policy here for a bit. Um, in our remaining time, I, I think we should just talk about the response to the speech. Uh, I was struck, Sarah, when I woke up, just how rapturous the, the response was. And and look, I actually thought it's a very competently delivered speech. I thought, frankly, it's probably one of the best delivered speeches he's given, which is an interesting fact about Trump's performance last night. But I don't – that morning, Donald Trump said that it was possible that – Jews were defacing their own cemeteries to make people look bad. Later that day, he blamed the military for the botched raid in Yemen, which he had approved. And then that night, he read a speech off of a teleprompter. And I was just really struck by how, how deep the media's latent desire to treat Trump normally is, right? And how low the bar is to like say, yeah, maybe it's all different now. Right. And I think that's going to be like a constant tension in media coverage of this. Like, what is the Bar, like, how do we think about this? I think I saw 
Trump's speech got like um, like most people approved of it who who were watching it, but it was still on the low end. I think I was seeing some stats that Obama like was usually in like the mid sixties. Trump was in the mid fifties last night in terms of approval. Ratings, um, you know, the people who are watching it generally, or the majority at least, thought it went decently well. And I think it's something the media both, like, struggles with. You can see, like, both articles that are, like, praising the speech and then the articles, like, backlashing the praise uh-huh. of the speech. I think you're right, Ezra, that's a good point, that there's, like, this yearning for normalcy and, like, desire to cover, like, a president as a president normally works. I, I mean, I will say, like, I covered the healthcare part the most closely. And it was, like, a little bit refreshing to be like, oh, here are some actual policy details. And, like, I will write about those and, like, I can explain those. And that was, like, different from what I am used to covering. Like, the most health policy I've seen from Trump are, like, tweets about Obamacare is failing or, like, premiums went up in Arizona. Like, this was actual ideas. They were broad. Like, they were not, like... um but I don't know. I was kind of I saw I, I got a little bit of pushback saying, like, well, you're giving him too much credit. And, you know, this isn't don't call this a health care plan. It's not a health care plan. But at the same point, like it was actual substantive policy. But um, yeah, but I thought within that what was interesting was that I think it makes complete sense. And we did cover the normal parts of the speech mm-hmm. normally and the normal things that are happening normally. I mean, the Trump administration does many things in a day. Some of them are just. They're just normal processes. You know, they're coming out with plans or they're coming out with statements. What was fascinating to me is the constant hope that maybe Trump is really different this time. Right. And and that to me felt like the overread that not just wasn't founded, but I was just seemed so sad and gullible. <laughs> but we've that seen that before, we've seen it right? Before. Like with like, um, that morning, yeah. we had we had the whole thing read after a couple of days ago saying no more <laughs> anonymous sources became an anonymous source. Like it was like within hours, hours. And I just think this is going to be a real like the Trump it, administration believes that the, the media is against him. But the I'm, truth is yeah. the media is not but against him. The media like, badly wants to cover them well. They will lower the bar to do it. And the and Trump himself just I'm refuses curious, to like, clear how, that low bar for very long. How Trump reacts to this. He we, loved it. No, no. I know he loved it. Like, does this shape? Because I would think like in like my theory of Trump that you'd be like, oh, wow, people really liked what I did mm-hmm. last night. Like maybe more of that. He also does not appear to have, like, the impulse control to move in that direction. But I, I'm kind of curious, like, you could see uh, one theory as a, that it's like a snowball effect, right? Like, people react well to him acting like a normal president. He acts more like a normal president more. We have not seen, like, there's no evidence that suggests that theory will play out. But it does, like, seem plausible when you think about, like, Trump and how he works. I think a lot of this talk, it's like a, it's like a total like field reversal of the relationship of presidential speeches to being president of the mm-hmm. United States, right? That like we know, we have seen like Martin Sheen play a president of the United States giving a speech. I've seen Jeff Bridges do it. I've seen a lot of actors do it and they do it much better than Donald Trump does. They have more talented writers working for them. They are better looking. They are way, way, way better at it. Just like The West Wing was a better show than The Apprentice, right? It's an okay television show. (laughs) Donald Trump is an okay television actor. 
Oftentimes, if you sit and think about these like movie president speeches, not as like, was this an interesting scene, but like, I'm a political journalist. Would this work? Would Jeff Bridges from The Contender going down into the walls of Congress and saying, shame on you, like persuade opposition party members to vote for his bills? Like, no, it wouldn't. Um, so you might try it anyway, right? I mean, like things happen. I, I think in Obama's final State of the Union speech, he wasn't like – oh, this speech is going to get it done, right? Like he, he'd lost faith in it too. But when you're president, you're president, right? You have this office, you have all these aides, you're trying to do things presumably. And speeches are one of many things that you can do to try to achieve objectives. Um, and if you think in this like basic like means ends, like what is Trump doing? Why is he not succeeding in achieving things he might want to do? The speech didn't – it just – it didn't like address any of that. And I thought the biggest tell in this regard is that the other thing Trump has done recently that was good was that first he fired terrible Michael Flynn. And then on the advice of Tom Cotton, he hired H.R. Uh, McMaster to be uh, chairman of the National Security Council. At first, it kind of seemed like maybe McMaster only took it because he was active duty military and couldn't say no. Uh, but then we heard that like, no, McMaster has the right to like shake up the staff. He's doing things. So, OK, that seems smart. And it was widely praised. And I was hoping that Sarah's positive feedback mechanism would come in, that Trump would say, oh, you know what? These guys aren't out to get me. I hired somebody well-qualified. I let him have the freedom to do his job how he needs to, and I got praised for it. Uh, so we had a story that McMaster told the president uh, the same fucking thing that the Bush administration said, that every CIA director ever has said, which is that like there is a reason we don't run around calling it radical Islamic terrorism. I understand why you like it for partisan political gain, but like people – who put on a uniform and fight to defend the United States of America have thought about this long and hard and do not think it is a good idea for the president to do this. It gets people killed and it makes it harder for us to do our jobs. Um, then he just put it in the speech, you know, and like from a speech writing perspective, it is clearly better to say <laughs> radical Islamic extremism, right? But like you hire a good policy advisor exactly to tell you this stuff. There's like, this is what you have to do as president. Is your speechwriter is saying like, we should call them giraffes. And your military <laughs> advisor is like, no, no, don't call them giraffes. People will die. And you have to be like, all right, we got to cut the line. But like, he didn't cut the line. So there's no progress, it seems to me. Like, it's great that, you know, give a speech, don't give a speech, call it fake news, tweet, don't tweet. But it's like, are we seeing evidence from these speeches that Donald Trump is improving his, like, ability to formulate public policy in the national interest? And, like, we're clearly not. And I just don't know what everyone is, like, on about with, like, there was a very he funny, reads off the teleprompter well. I mean, who cares? There was a very funny Robert Costa tweet today. And then Costa is at The Washington Post is very plugged in with, with the Trump people. And he tweeted, the Trump advisors are shocked by the response to the speech, they note that they did not change any policies and there was not a significant change in strategy. So they were not expecting this response. And, and they this, have no policy plans to like really right, like yes. use this as a launching point uh, right now. There is talk that they were going to bring out a new version of the travel ban and they have delayed it because they're enjoying this moment of good feelings. I, I, I don't know how true that is, but, but that is what is being reported today. So I 
agree with what Sarah said. I do not think Donald Trump is the impulse control. I mean, you could imagine not getting better at all these other things, but getting better at just the performance of the presidency, right? Do not get up at five in the morning and tweet at your enemies. Give speeches that make more sense. Stop calling the, the media the enemy of the people. It was very notable in the speech. It had nothing about the media, which the last five or whatever did. Um, but I think Trump is Trump. He's a guy with a very distinct personality, a very distinct set of habits, and he responds to stimuli in a very uh, predictable way. So at some of these very planned out nights, uh, the convention speech was like this. So the convention speech had a very a dark tone, but it was a traditional conventional approach to how to give a speech. Like you read the words that are in front of you on the page. But yeah, they, they have not resolved the contradictions in their policies. I don't think they have a strategy for doing that. They've not really made their White House work. And, you know, I, I understand the impulse to want to cover this stuff normally. But I think the media is going to have to be able to separate the idea that there are going to be some things Donald Trump does more normally and those should be covered like in a normal fashion uh, without everything being a referendum on whether or not at noon on Tuesday, Donald Trump's entire character, which has been affirmed and validated and shown again and again in every kind of situation and manageable for years now, has changed. The, and I think that just makes us all kind of look stupid. There, there was a quote out there that, you know, a senior administration official said Donald Trump said the speech was nationalism, but in an indoor voice. And it's not the first time that I've seen – That's a very good line. The president's staff analogized the president to a toddler. Um, and I have to say as the parent of a toddler, I, I actually think it's quite different. And I think it is a real mistake to view this as like toddler-esque temper tantrums that need to be controlled through this kind of like you know stimulus response, like behavioral science to, to calm him down. Like there is a reason – that Trump always ends up ranting about the media and it's because he has a very chaotic team which is not on the same page and does not have a process through which it can resolve its internal disputes. He does not have the patience to sit through long meetings and read written material. So when people on his team want to influence the decision-making process, they have to do so through the media. That creates a media climate that is filled with stories about chaos and divisiveness inside the Trump White House, that makes Donald Trump feel that he is besieged by the media and it makes him want to attack his enemies in order to unify his team. It is true that there is an immaturity on Trump's part that is driving this, but it's not it, it's not the same as teaching a kid that like you say all done when you're done with dinner instead of throwing your food on the floor, right? Because it's just not like that, right? It's These problems keep arising for systemic reasons and Trump is not addressing them and Trump's team is not addressing them. Like nobody is doing anything to create a structured conventional process in which decisions are made in a way that does not require key decision makers to like ring up Joe Scarborough and be like, oh, this other guy's fucking up. Um because that's terrible. Like, you, of course, you, Trump's mad all the time. But, like, he needs to fix it. And it's good, I guess, that they put this speech together. But, like, they're going to keep having this problem unless they actually do something. And I think it's uh, dangerous on their own part to be too impressed with their ability to, like, snow the press with this speech. Like, they haven't fixed anything. And, like, they really should. The country will be better off. They will be better off. Like, this chaos is not helping. But 
I guess I don't know how you fix it. Because it feels like the like 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 you were saying, like the problem is as I think we've read in like multiple reports that Trump does not like sitting still for long meetings. He doesn't like reading these. So you go like what is that seems like the core issue and the but theory he has that to, you're he has to delegate decisions to somebody. Right? He has to decide. Yeah. But I mean, like, I'm saying what, it doesn't what? seem like an issue with this. I mean, in part, it seems like an issue with staff, but it really seems like a Trump-centric issue. Right, like, it's not it's, like they haven't developed the right processes around it. It's like the challenge of staffing this particular president. Sure. But I mean, I think, look, all presidents, I, at least I assume, that like Barack Obama was not like personally weighing in on each and everything that happened in every agency in the mm-hmm. Obama administration. It's too much work to do. Now, he obviously, he had more patience for briefings and, and reading stuff. You know, Bush, they say, was less of a briefings guy, like like shorter stuff. But you have to decide, like, what are you going to do? What are you going to not do? If the president isn't going to do certain things, are they actually unimportant or are we going to task somebody else with them and, like, set something up? And it's – Trump is this, like, fake management guru, which I think has – gotten I think they can't admit to themselves that like he doesn't know how to run a large enterprise and that like not that I am some genius about it but like you have to run the large enterprise the way all large enterprises are run and that's with some clear lines of authority structures for who makes decisions an idea about what is delegated and what isn't and like you have to go with it and instead they're just winging it like everything is staging a campaign rally. Well, the thing I'd like to delegate to you all is to share the weeds on your social media feeds, to rate it on iTunes, to subscribe, to tell people it is great, it is making America great again, and they should listen. Give us rave reviews. Give us rave reviews. Um, thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro. Thank you to my colleagues, Sarah Cliff and Matt Iglesias, um, who are here after a very long night. Uh, the Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and it will be back next week. <laughs>